Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Griffiths, a podiatrist in London. Ian and I had a great conversation around why a lot of injuries happen in the foot and ankle area, and then dive into whether things such as foot structure matter, if shoe wear matters, and are orthotics really necessary. Whether you are an athlete, clinician, or a coach, I think you will find this information highly valuable. So let's tune in. Ian, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm really well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You are quite welcome. I'm super excited. I absolutely love foot and ankle. It's one of my favorite areas to treat because it's so integral to our human function. So I'm super excited to get you on here and just discuss everything you know about foot and ankle. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll try my best. Uh, I'm not sure I know everything, but yeah, it, it's it's been part of my life now for over two decades. So yeah, it, I, you could say I'm into it as well. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, give us a little bit of your background. Uh, you are in London, so give us a little background of your kind of medical career, your fitness career, that sort of thing. How you got to where you are today? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, on on uh, graduation, I went into our health service, the NHS, as as was often the case back in the early two thousands, and and did a few years there, seeing just a huge range of of foot and ankle problems, not just sports injuries, and um, you know, all sorts of, of medical issues as well. And then over time, I sort of you know always knew my passion was going to be to move into a more musculoskeletal role, you know, seeing sports. I'm a sports mad, so if I want to watch sport, I want to play sport, I want to see sports people at work. So I did my master's degree in, in that area, and then I moved into private practice and just sort of tried to sort of shape my career in, in, in that direction. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to, to be sort of working in, in clinics that allow me to do that within multidisciplinary teams, you know, doctors, physiotherapists, et cetera, uh, in London since around 2006 now. Um, with regard to my fitness career, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be so bold to say that I've uh, ever been good enough at anything to, to frame it a career, but uh, <laughs> I'm one of those people that I'm, I'm sports mad, um, but I'm very average. So I, I have to work insanely hard to be very average at something. So I've, I've, I've played a bit of football, in my, uh, soccer uh, in my time, and uh, I've played a bit of golf in my time, and I've done a bit of CrossFit. For, for a few years but uh, right now I'm working very hard to be a very average runner uh, so that's kind of my my air quotes fitness career <laughs> nothing wrong with being a very <laughs> average runner at all <laughs> when talking about athletes you that's who you want to work with or that's who you do work with are the sports population is there a overall kind of group of people that you find more injuries with or more like certain types of injuries you find um i would i would say that it's probably fair that the, the large percentage of people we that we see or that i see in my area is is your, your true runner so your 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 person who's just running in a straight line for a designated distance whether that be park park run you know 5k or, or whether it be up to uh, marathon or ultra marathons are getting pretty popular with London folk at at present. So the, the classic runner, um, but they're probably a good eighty percent of who we would see. I would guess um, the other sports that we see, um, you know, football and, and and rugby and things uh, that that they involve running too, of course. But but it's it's much more stop start, multi-directional, not so sort of continuous straight line. And even the golfers I see actually, I mean, 
one of the last ones I saw, we were talking about his problem and you know, I was trying to tease out, is this a problem with the, the golf swing? And, and ultimately, he, he, he did it on the treadmill in the gym because most of these guy, guys and girls now are obviously, when they're off the course, they're very, very much, um, uh, quite sensibly, of course, spending some time focusing on strength and conditioning as well. So even the non-runners are probably, it's, it's often the running that might, might trip them up. So I think it's probably fair to say running is the, the one. What do you feel leads to all the, the different running injuries that there are? That like, why are so many runners injured all the time? Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's the it's it's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's the one that we 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 hope to to find the answer to one day. It's the it's the it's the classic stat that you know, with all of the advances in knowledge and all the, the you know running shoe technology, whatever you want to call it, we look at the injury stats and and and. They're no different to, to, to when they were. But I think if you look at the, the number of people running, it's very different to what it was a few decades ago. You look at the type of people running, um, and, and it's so much more inclusive now, you know, all different people, shapes, sizes. Um, it, it, my take on it, uh, rightly or wrongly, is, is a lot of it comes down to just good old-fashioned training error. Um, I think... I think people do too much too soon. And I, and I think our perception of what too much is, 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 is often way off. So yeah, we're very, we're very time poor with, with work and with family and, 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 you know, life, general life. And then we, we try and, you know, we, we cram in things into the, into the remaining time we have. So, you know, I don't know. I, I know it's not such a culture in, in the U S but in the UK, we have this, what we call binge drinking culture where someone might not drink alcohol all week because they're so busy at work. But then when they go out on Friday night, they're going to drink eight pints of beer, for example. Um, and, and it's not going to go well for them because they've got no tolerance and they're going to be horribly drunk and, and horribly hungover. And, and I, we find that people do the same with their exercise. They binge exercise, uh, not, not intentionally, just, just they're just time poor. So I think even the people that I speak to, that say I did some reading and I, I read that I had to go slowly. They did, you know, they, they read the magazines or the blogs. I knew that too much too soon was, was, you know, training error is the biggest cause of injury. So the first time I went for a run, I took it really easy and, and I only did 5k, uh, you know, so, so they had the right idea, but they still just, I think, um, I don't know whether they just, just uh, completely misinterpreted what their body was capable of what their capacity was at that time when you say to them when did you last run and they said oh, i did some at school 20 years ago so uh, i think it comes down to education training error load load management uh, ultimately cool when we're dealing with running injuries you know everyone who's whether it's recreational athlete or athlete is like we have aches pains things come up what's your view on when it's okay to run through pain run through soreness or when it's time to like shut it down, we got to figure something else out. Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, in the UK in podiatry, we're, we're, um, we're playing catch up a bit. If I'm honest with regard to uh, the contemporary understanding of pain. So I hold my hands up and I, I, want, I want that to be my caveat immediately. I'm on very much on a learning curve, a self, a self being self teaching myself a more contemporary understanding of pain. So I still don't think I've fully got it, but I think I'm in a better place than I've ever been. And, and I've definitely been guilty of a conflating pain with tissue damage um, in the past. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm much more mindful now that, that you know, um, 
pain is, is a poor and often inconsistent predictor of, of the states of the tissues. And, and I'm trying to talk more in terms of sensitivity uh, when, I, when I talk to my runners. And actually as a runner myself, and I, I won't pretend over the last year, I haven't had uh, areas of sensitivity myself. I, I actually have to sit down and talk to myself about it and say, okay, like, you know, uh, my wife said to me the other day, you're always injured. And I said to her, I'm not always injured. I'm always in pain. Um, and, and I feel I feel like that's a really important distinction to make. I'm the wrong side of 40. Yeah, things hurt. But actually, you know, they don't hurt that much. They're not stopping me run and they don't hurt that much when I run. The next day, um, they're not interfering with my sleep. The next morning, you know, they're not significantly worse. They just, just, and so to my mind, I'm like, well, you know, I'm okay to keep running. And, and, and I sort of, um say this to my to my patients to runners as well i sort of say you know like there's a few things i think we should always take take seriously i think one of them is rest is night pain and sleep interruption i don't think um there's too much disagreement that that's probably something worthy of a deeper a deeper level of discussion um but if if uh, if there's if there's none of that absent and if there's no prohibition of daily activities and if it's not stopping you run and if after you're running it's it's not dramatically worse you know if, if I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the visual analog scale, but if someone said to me, oh, my pain's a two out of 10 most of the day, and then after I go for a run, it's like an eight out of 10, then I'm like, well, maybe maybe, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should dial back on the running until we've worked out what we're dealing with here. But if someone says to me, I'm a two out of 10, and then after a run, it's a three out of 10 for 24 hours, and then it goes back to a two, and there's no sleep interruption, and I'm doing all my rehab, I'm like, yeah, keep running. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in keeping people running um, who, who, who are runners or, or keeping people doing what they're doing. If it's not uh, being detrimental to rehab, if it's not sort of uh, really flaring their sensitivity. I mean, ultimately, we see so many runners that get a bit of tendon pain, dial back on their running for three weeks, uh, you know, before they've sought any medical opinion. Um, obviously it feels a bit better because they've not been running. Uh, still a bit stiff in the mornings, but then that eases off. And then three weeks later when they return to running, unsurprisingly to everyone except, except them perhaps, it hurts again because in the three weeks they've not run, they've got no tolerance for running because they haven't been doing it. So they're, they're, they've not been doing any strength and conditioning. So I always use that beer analogy with patients because most people in London um, like a drink uh, once or twice a week. So I always say to them, like, if you were going on a stag do, or, or you know, going to a wedding in three weeks' time, um, and you didn't drink a single unit of alcohol between now and then. How do you think it would go if you suddenly drank ten pints on on, on that wedding day? And and you know, I use that wedding day as the analogy for their race day, or their, their, their you know their ten k that they're going to do. So like, you're not going to be tolerant of that race if you don't do any running between now and then. So it's that kind of gradual exposure, isn't it? That building capacity. You know, uh, I've had various people talking about, I know uh, Greg Lehman talks about poking the bear, which is I think quite a nice, a nice way to frame it. So like I say, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on pain. I'm, I'm fascinated by it presently. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm moving towards understanding it better, but that's my current take on, on the whole thing. Yeah, I actually, I agree with that. That's why I normally tell people too, is like, if it gets worse, you need to stop. If it's just kind of staying there steady, not getting worse, um, yeah, I try to keep them running. If it's not changing their gait, not changing how they're running, then yeah, I like to keep my athletes out there as well. Yeah. It just makes sense. Doesn't it? I think, um, I don't know any athlete. I, I read a great paper just recently published that I can't remember the exact number, but I think it said that they, you know, they took a, a survey of people and in the run up to a half marathon, 
80 or 90 percent of them had some reported some pain somewhere like because uh, and in the last race i was at uh, i was at the start line and i was just listening to people in the starting pen that i was in chatting around me and, and everyone was like oh how's your knee how's your hip how's your you know like you're a runner like you're a runner in your 40s like you're going to be you're going to be in pain every day but it doesn't mean you're injured so um, I just need to convince my wife that that's the case <laughs> <laughs> how's that going for you <laughs> yeah not so well not so well <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the, the whole idea that people have these tendon issues and then rest and then come back and are all surprised on these injuries coming back because that's such a misnomer that people get that all they need to do is rest. This pain will go away and then they'll be perfectly fine, ready to go again. And so I kind of want to dive into that a little bit um, or just tendon issues in general in that lower leg, in that foot area. There's so many um, areas we can, we can have tendon issues. Primarily we get the Achilles post tib, sometimes anterior tib. What contributes do you, what do you feel contributes to a lot of these tendon issues people deal with? I think historically, and the, the, the really interesting position we find ourselves in, in the world of podiatry is that when people come to see us or they're referred to see us by, by another health professional, a doctor, a physiotherapist, um, it's often through in the context of, can you take a look at this person's foot structure, their, their architecture, their posture, their, or their foot dynamics, um, because they've got a, an Achilles tendinopathy or a tibialis posterior uh, tendinopathy. And it's really interesting. If I think back to 20 years ago, if someone came in to see me with, I don't know, an Achilles tendinopathy or tibialis posterior tendinopathy, and let's, let's say for want of a better terminology, they had a very pronated foot posture, both statically, but also through dynamic mid starts. The training I was given, or most of us are given, I think is, to very much look at the way that foot's behaving dynamically, look at the way it's interacting with, with its environment and, and make that kind of immediate assumption that that must be placing more stress on that tendon. We know tibialis posterior's job. We know what, it, what it's, it, it's often asked to do. And thus we can look at what a foot does and make a decision rightly or wrongly that, well, we're asking it to do too much and therefore we've overloaded it. And that was kind of 20 years ago. That would, every person that came through the door, you were, you know we're human so we like to look for correlations and and, and we sometimes assume that, that what we're seeing this pattern that we like to look for patterns and then we jump to the assumption that means causation which we know is not true and i think about the way i look at things now um i'm not saying that you don't sometimes see, see cases like that but i look at people who come in with you know um let's let's say that classic example of tibialis posterior tendinopathy and a very pronated foot posture and you have a chat to them and you sit down, you talk about them and, and they say, oh, I've got this, this tendon on the inside of my ankle is, is, is uh, problematic, it's painful and um, I've been told it's because I'm flat-footed. That's kind of the, the, the patient's or the athlete's words. And you have a chat to them and they're in their 40s and they've run since they were 20 and they're, they're a pretty good runner. You know, they run like a, a 350 at marathon, you know, um, and they've done eight marathons in the past and they haven't changed their, their running shoes. Uh, nothing, you know, and you sort of look and go, well, you've always had this foot posture and this, these foot dynamics and you've always been in a certain shoe and you haven't changed that. And you've always put lots of miles through your limbs um, and you've never had this problem before. So why are we suddenly sitting here in 2019, for example, and, and blaming your foot posture? And I think you, you speak to some people and, and again, even these people where you look and think tip post problem, air quotes, flat feet, this must be, we, we've got to do something about this. 
often it's an, it comes down to training error or spike. They're, they're probably more likely to overload that tendon than someone else would be. But I still think we sometimes jump to the conclusion that we need to help out more than we actually do. So for these people, I often say to them, because of your foot structure or your foot dynamics, we might need to get something inside your shoe to, to, to offload this tendon in the short term whilst you're working on building up its capacity and, and things. But I very much want to frame it in that case that, that, that this was a temporary thing, that you never needed it in the past. I don't think you need it in the future. What I think you might need is you might need it right now to, to, to sort of really sort of uh, facilitate and complement the other, the other sort of um, prongs of the management strategy. So um, I don't know why, but for some reason, I mean, let's, let's think of two, two scenarios. You go to an optician and you have your eyes tested and they tell you your eyes aren't functioning as, as beautifully as they could. I'm going to prescribe you a pair of spectacles, uh, glasses, and, and you say, okay, no problem. And without any word being spoken, everyone in that room knows, well, this is a life sentence. Um, these things are going to be on my face for the rest of my life. Um, the second scenario, if you hurt your shoulder or your elbow, and you, you go and see the specialist and they say, okay, well, we need to stop you moving this right now while it's, while it's uh, super annoyed. We're going to uh, put you in a sling without any word being spoken, no one in that room believes this is a life sentence. No one in that room thinks, oh God, sling for the rest of my life. You're often thinking, what are we thinking, doc? Like four weeks, five weeks. Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason, when you're in a room with a podiatrist and the discussion of foot orthoses comes up, traditionally, people have gone straight to the glasses analogy, you know, um, rather than the sling analogy. Um, I think, we're probably shifting in our thinking more recently, but people still come in and I still people see people, they come into clinic and they've got a pair of orthoses in their shoes and they sort of, I sort of say, Oh, where, where, what's the story here? They said, I've had those for 10 years. He said, okay. And they, you know, they're in a different country and they've since moved to London. What were they giving you for? I can't even remember now. Like, why are you still wearing them? Well, cause I was told I needed to wear them. Uh, yeah. Really interesting. Um, scenario. I think in, in, Far more cases than not, orthoses are, are more like a sling than they are like a pair of, of glasses. So when we're coming back to the point, because I think I've rambled away from the point, coming back to the foot and ankle tendons, I'm not saying foot posture is not important because I think it's something we always look at and consider, but immediately sort of looking at foot posture and thinking that's why that tendon's overloaded is probably not where our mind goes. It's more a case of, okay, this tendon's overloaded. The history will tell us why. Nine times out of ten, it's probably training error anyway. And their anatomy and their, their function, their biomechanics, may be something that uh, we need to short term, short in the, manipulate in the short term to facilitate quicker recovery. I think we do see cases where the foot posture didn't cause the tendon overload, but, but it, it actually might be something that contributes to a more prolonged recovery, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I love that you use the sling analogy with your orthotics because I do the same. I use um, back brace for the analogy, but same thing. It's like you get this back brace after surgery with the intent of wearing it for like six, eight weeks, and then it's gone. Like that's when an orthotic should be. So I love that you use that very similar analogy there. Yeah, I, I actually find as well, um, I try and use it to further help out my, my physio colleagues who are often giving them a concurrent sort of uh, strength conditioning rehab program i try and sort of say to them that like the absolute your goal here i'm giving you something here your goal is to make this redundant 
Your goal isn't to put this in and think, great, I don't need to do my exercises. That's not the way to look at this. Your goal is to say, I've got a bit of plastic in my shoe. I don't want it there long term. The only way you're going to get rid of this is by, you know, I always try and turn it that way. I say, what, what, what we're basically looking at here is a tendon that we're trying to help out. The current, the current status it's in, um, it's not, it's not coping with what we're asking it to do. So it's a bit like if you're in your own office at work and the work's piling up and piling up and piling up and your stress levels are going crazy, you're, you're, you're just not coping. So what your boss should hope, or a good boss would hopefully do is bring in a temp and the temp sits alongside you and immediately the stress on you is reduced because you, you're, you're sharing the workload. But once that work gets to a really, really manageable level, that temp should be made redundant. I mean, the clues in the name, they, they were a temp. So uh, that's the analogy I tend to use in clinic. I say to people that the orthosis is, is the temp uh, and it's helping out the tendon. Once that tendon can cope again, we need to make this device uh, redundant. Now, there will be cases where um, perhaps that temp needs to be a permanent member of staff. Uh, of course, I'm not saying that there won't be, but I think going back 20 years, it was everyone gets things for life. And, and I think, I don't think that's true. But at the same time, if we swing the pendulum too far the other way and say they're never a life sentence, I don't think that's true either. But, um, you know, we're, we're somewhere in the middle. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I, I always say like maybe 1% of the population needs them forever just because there's such a structural issue going on. But yeah, it's definitely not most people for sure. Yeah. When someone's coming off of injury, so if a runner's seen you dealing with a tendon issue – you're getting them back off of injury. What's your suggestion for ramping mileage back up safely so not to, or hopefully not to re-injure themselves? Um, it's interesting, actually. We, uh, I just recently listened to, um, I, I'm a big fan of podcasts. Um, so I listen to them when I'm running and when I'm sort of you know, commuting to work and things. And um, uh, I'm just, just listen to as many as I can. And I've, I've listened to, to loads on this particular topic, particularly on, um, you know, Tim, Tim Gabbett stuff um, in his uh, sort of, sort of a uh, position as the kind of guy who's, who's doing the most publishing on load management at the moment. So uh, I guess going back many, many years, it was always the 10% rule. And then you sort of, as time evolves, you read things and you're like, well, that's got flaws. Nothing is not perfect. And then the acute to chronic workload ratio came along. And I'll be honest and say that that, that very much spoke to my bias. I, I liked it a lot. Um, it made sense to me. Um, it was something that you could um, essentially measure. And a lot of people we see, um, particularly the, guy, the guys and girls in London who are working in the financial sector, they're very, very driven by data. You know, everyone wears a Garmin now, all runners are on Strava. So actually giving them a spreadsheet and saying to them, you know, fill out your session RPE and multiply it by the minutes, that, that, that isn't a problem for them. They, they, that's quite the opposite, they, they, they love it. So, uh, and then I recently listened to a podcast um, for, you know, it was um, the NAF, video, NAF Physio podcast, Adam Meekins, Greg Lehman, uh, they did an episode on it. And, and, and quite rightly, you know, even the acute to chronic workload ratio is perfect. We know, we know nothing's perfect, is it? Um, I think we probably still, we still use, we still guide, we still advise along the, along the lines of the acute to chronic workload ratio. Um, uh, with kind of just a bit more of a pragmatic approach as well, which is I, I often say to, to runners, depending on their running history, their background and where they're coming from. Um, ultimately, if, if on your return to running, you're, you're, you're frustrated, you're just annoyed that, you know, it's, t it's, it's taking too long and it's too, it feels like it's too slow. It feels like it's over cautious. 
if you feel that way, that, that, that level of frustration and, and annoyance, then you've probably got it just about right. Um, because as a human, we, we, we're not patient enough, it comes back to being time poor and things. I think we, want, we, we do things too much too soon. We want everything yesterday. You know, everything is so immediate in this day and age. And uh, I think if you're not, when you're returning to running, if you're not frustrated, it probably means you're overdoing it. And that's kind of a, a very, I guess, uh, just pragmatic way of, of, of approaching it. Um, and then just, I guess, just education, isn't it? Just, just avoid the jumps, avoid the spikes. And, and the spikes are sometimes where they hide, don't they? It's, I think it's really obvious if you haven't been running for a few weeks and you go out and run 10K. You know, even people, they come into clinic and they're sort of sheepish and you say, well, how did this happen? And they look at you and they, they, they know. <laughs> they're like, and some of them even, even preface the discussion by saying, I was a bit of an idiot. You know, they know. They know. Um, but I think sometimes it's those, it's those hidden ones that trick people whereby, I don't know, they were, they were sick for three days um, and, and they, they, they didn't take that into account. Uh, so not just that they, they missed a couple of days training, but actually because they've been sick and unwell, their actual capacity has, has reduced. People are much more mindful now of how sleep and nutrition and, and, and stress feed into this thing. But I think too long, too long people were looking at saying, okay, I'm doing one mile, two miles, three miles, or the 10% rule, or the acute chronic workload going up and up and up. But then they weren't taking into account how they were feeling that day. So people sometimes say to me, I do, I do the park run every Saturday, 5K, 5K, 5K. Do you have park run where you are? You know what I mean when I say park run? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, so they, I just, I'm, I'm taking it really easy. I do a 5K on a Saturday, and then in the week I do a couple of you know, shorter sessions, like a two, three, and I've been doing that, and it didn't go up at all. Um, but then suddenly, a, a few weeks later, I, you know, I got injured. I, I, I was running a park run, and suddenly I felt my, my knee felt painful. And it's like, I don't understand because I've been really sensible, and I haven't increased what I'm doing. So I haven't spiked my load, but then, but you're like, well, what you're doing isn't the same. But if what your what your capacity was has dropped, then then it's kind of the same as doing too much, isn't it? And and often when you tease it out, they're like, well, actually, I was sick the week before, or I did have three really bad nights sleep when with one of my children who, who was teething or whatever it may be. So I mean, I think we just we're just mindful of, of educating people to avoid the spikes, but teaching them that a spike isn't just going out and running further. It's 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 more than that. That's a great thing to point out. Um, I know myself in the past, it's like, especially when I was really training heavy for um, cross country and marathons, half marathons, that it's like, this is my training schedule. This is what I have to go run. And yeah, I ignored the fact that like my body felt like crap one day. I was just, I had to get those miles in. So it is something that we are being becoming more mindful as a society, but it's still very hard for a lot of people to deviate off that training program because they're so just invested in it and don't understand necessarily that overstressing the body is actually doing the detriment to themselves in a number of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. I, I, I think more people now than ever have got coaches. Um, you know, people just used to run. Whereas now if you're running and you're training for something, you know, having a coach who writes you a plan is, is a very, I, I have one, you know, and, and um, I think it's a brilliant thing. And I think what separates the really good coaches from, uh, from the others is are the ones that, that don't have any flexibility. Um, you know, the ones that, that would, I think the great thing about having a coach is that you're accountable, but what you don't want to do is feel like, feel like rubbish and look at your plan and go, well, I need to do, you know, 6K tonight at, uh, you know like in this certain heart rate zone and, and I just don't feel like it but I know if I don't the coach is going to check 
you know there has to be that that flexibility and um yeah i i think it's a great point um you you just really need to listen to your body ultimately and it's that fine line isn't it between getting home from work and going oh i can't be bothered but i really should or or or, or flip side is is I really shouldn't. I feel awful, but I really, I, but the program telling me I should. I mean, you want to listen to your body and not overdo it, but you don't want to bail out every time you don't quite feel like it. It's, it's kind of somewhere in the, there's, a, there's a, mag, a magic zone in the middle, isn't there? <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. Um, curious your thoughts on traditional shoes versus zero drop versus minimalist shoes. Yeah, I thought this might come up. Um, it is, it's interesting that, that what I love now is that we've gone through these real polarized times. So, um, and, and, and just, just, to, just the two most recent kind of eras, I guess, is if you, if you go to the 80s and the 90s when it was all about, um, you know, uh, pronation control and the stability shoes, you know, with the, the high drop and the, the dual density midsole. And then in the sort of early 2000s, certainly around 2010, um, it became much more barefoot, um, you know, barefoot running or, or barefoot shoes, even though that's an oxymoron. And, and, and then since then, it's kind of all merged a bit. And, and, and you know, I think we're in a really nice place now where I can't remember a time when, I, when I've been into a, walked into a running store and seen such a wide range of shoes. You know, such a vast range of shoes in, in, in you know, from the barefoot shoes uh, all the way up to the, the, the real, real, what they're now calling, you know, from the minimalist shoes to what they're referring to now as the maximalist shoes. I'm not sure I'm cool with those terminologies, but you know what I mean. So from, from, the, from the, I guess, the Vibram five fingers to the hocker to, to, to just visualize two shoes at different ends of the spectrum. But, but it's more complex than that in that we've got shoes with different drops, different stack heights, different levels of cushioning, uh, different weights. And what I love about seeing just, just so many options is that when we look at the human population, it's, it's just vastly variable. You know, we are, none of us are the same. We have significant variations in our anatomy, uh, to name but one thing, not to mention all of the other facets of our existence. So I, I love the idea that in theory, there's a shoe out there for everyone. Now, where we're not still as good as we want to be or as we would like, you know, we, we sometimes pretend we are, is in, fi- in taking person A and finding out exactly which one of those shoes is perfect for them. That's probably where we're, we're, we're lacking a bit in, in, in uh, knowledge at the moment. But in theory, we've got this population which is hugely variable. We've got the widest range of shoes we've ever had. So we're in a, we're in a good place. Um, I've never subscribed to the thought that there's one shoe that's best for everyone. And I, did, I didn't think pronation control shoes were, were the best thing for everyone. I don't think stability shoes with dual density midsoles are the best thing for everyone. I don't think barefoot or minimalist shoes are. I don't think, I don't think because that just doesn't work for me. There's never going to be one thing that's best for everyone. So I think rather than saying, rather than kind of comparing apples and oranges and saying, you know, minimalist versus maximalist, which is best, it's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, okay, we've got all these shoes out there with all these different design features. Let's, let's focus our attention on how we work out with individual in front of us, the N equals one in front of us, how to pick the best shoe based on the context and, and what we're trying to achieve here. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of, I think, where we are right now in 2019. And I think, 
you know, for the for the last sort of decade or two of of discussion and ar- online argument and polarized opinion and marketing and lawsuits that some shoe companies have found themselves in, I think all of that has happened for for a reason, and it is to lead us into the place we are right now, which is actually, I think, quite a quite an okay place. Uh, we just still don't have answers to all these questions. I think the only thing we're we're in pretty much agreement on. Um, is that weight, i.e. mass, shoe mass, is the enemy of all runners. So regardless of your your level of ability, your distance, your goals, your your injury, I think um, what we should always be striving to do is have the lightest thing on our foot possible, just because of the energetics and the metabolic cost. Now, that doesn't mean, and, and, and you know, people immediately hear that sentence and go, oh, he's talking barefoot. No, what I'm saying is the lightest shoe that, that, that we think is appropriate. For some people, that might be the Brooks Beast, which is not a light shoe, but it might be the lightest one that's appropriate given other other contextual factors. So I think we need to always be striving to be in, in a shoe of minimal mass, but that doesn't mean everyone should go in a shoe of really low mass on the on the broader spectrum of shoes, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I think another thing to point out too is, you know, so, which I was one of them, uh, you know, you get stuck in like, this is a shoe I wear. And this is the only model shoe I wear. And it's what I'm going to wear forever. Um, well, one, they change them eventually. So that doesn't work. But yeah. two, as like injuries happen, you go through rehab, different things are strengthened. Um, you know, sometimes that shoe type does have to change because the body's functioning a little bit different too. Yeah. It's- it's a, it's a great point, actually. I, I see this so many times when people come in and, and I say, what shoe do you wear? They say, oh, the Asics Kayano. And it's Asics Kayano 25. And they've, they've had it for the last eight years. And, and again, it's like, oh, you, you know, some people, they're just brand loyal, right? They like a brand because they, they like, you know, it's cool, whatever it may be. But, but the majority, you say to them, why, why are you in this shoe? Well, I was told it was the right shoe for me. It's like, okay, when and by whom? And they're like, well, eight years ago by the running store. Now, two two factors there. The first is was it the right was it the right comment in the first place? We don't know. But the second is that was eight years ago. Like um, I've got a I've got a it's a, probably a poor analogy, but I've got a suit in my wardrobe upstairs that I was tailored. It was made for me, tailored for me on my wedding day back in uh, 2012. And um, I haven't even dared try and go and put it on recently because I'm pretty certain that I'm a different person um, seven years on. And I'm not saying um, that that feet necessarily change dramatically but but the reality is you as a runner do so you're you know if you've been advised a shoe at one point in time seven years on if you've been training consistently i'd like to think you're a, a stronger runner i'd like to think you had perhaps your technique had changed perhaps your cadence has changed your yeah there, there could be so many things about you that have changed and but you haven't changed your shoes because again it's like that life sentence philosophy isn't it someone told me i mean i need an asics Kayano. So I've worn an Asics Kano forever. And, um, and then when you try and sort of say, well, we can try other shoes here, there's a nervousness about approaching it. But um, I always say to people, a shoe recommendation is, is just that. It's a snapshot in time. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, it's appropriate now. And we do a lot of, because most of the people we're seeing are obviously, um, we're seeing them in the, in the, in the, in the context of, of a current problem um we're, we're we're sort of often doing what we call pathology specific prescribing which is probably a bit grandiose for what we're actually doing but what we're basically saying is well you know if you have a posterior ankle impingement then we probably need you to get you into a lower drop shoe uh, that just makes mechanical mechanical sense um you know uh, 
people have known this for a while. If a woman has posterior ankle impingement, she knows that her high heels are the most uncomfortable. So she stops wearing them for a period of time while she's sensitive. Um, so all we're really saying is, well, if you've always been in an 11 mil drop shoe um, and you were mostly wearing it for your commute to work, you know, so a lot of people in London wear their trainers for the commute. Um, well, maybe for that commute, we should get you in a lower drop shoe. People often say, I, I, I'm a bit confused because in my Kayano, around the back of my ankle really hurts. But when I put my, uh, my Converse on or my ballet pumps, you know, really, really flat shoes, or even my flip-flops, it's much less painful, but, but my, my trainer's more supportive, so I'm confused. I thought, well, it's not confusing at all. It's completely mechanically explainable. So we often put people in certain shoes of certain drop or, st or stack height or cushioning or, or even forefoot width, you know, you know the, the, the forefoot sort of the space-occupying lesions like the neuroma and the bursa there. Um, they're going to be much more comfortable in an ultra than they are in, in, in one of the narrower sort of ASICs last shoes. So, yeah, we often say to people right now, given the tissues are sensitive, you'll probably do best in X or Y. But don't take that as this is the shoe that you need to wear for the next decade. You know, that, that isn't the message here. <laughs> you know, as you're talking, this conversation came up that I had or conversation came to mind that I had yesterday. And I, and I feel like it's very relevant it's like people get you know whatever diagnosis and they just very much perseverate on that diagnosis being a limiting factor for everything and I feel like shoes are kind of the same way it's like they get this one shoe and then it's like okay this is the one this is the only one forever and it's just interesting how you how our brain just categorize and just get stuck on these on these situations at times yeah, yeah, I, I I find it fascinating just from a human behaviour point of view. Actually, yeah. Yeah, people come people come in to see me and, and they sort of say, just so you know, I'm, I'm I wear I wear barefoot shoes. I'm completely against uh, orthoses, um, and they're just completely you know they walked into my room and they're completely sort of staking their claim like I'm going to take this position where that's 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 exactly what I was going to. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to immediately sort of confront those beliefs um, they've been noted um and and now if some point further down the, down in the conversation it is something where i think well a higher drop shoe is actually gonna be quite helpful for this particular issue then i have to have i have to frame it in the way of saying like look, i'm not telling you you can't wear barefoot shoes i'm telling you they're going to keep you sensitive for longer and if you want this to settle down quicker we need to do this but it's 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 i use the sling analogy i say look look you don't want to wear a sling, but, but sometimes you have to, like, you know, do you want to, how could you, know, I think, I think people's beliefs are something that historically I was, I, I, I didn't take into consideration, you know, a bit old school, 20 years ago, it was kind of like, you're the, you're the medical professional. So when people come in to see you, they're in your room and you've got the white coat on and you've got the certificate on the wall. So they're just going to do what you tell them. You just, you, you just tell them what the problem is and they'll say, thank you, sir. And they'll walk out and they'll do it. And, and, what do you know? That doesn't happen, does it? Like, it just doesn't happen. People, people have the internet. People have their own beliefs. They, they have past experiences. They have these, these, this multi-layer complexity to them. Where if I say to you, I really think just a pair of heel raises may, for for six weeks, may well complement the rehab you're doing for that. Achilles that's a bit grumbly right now uh, and in for the next six weeks I'd probably avoid being in really flat shoes like your Converse or, or your pumps or your barefoot shoes um, 
I thought they'd say, oh, thank you. Yeah, but, but they don't, <laughs> you know. Um, so you, there's, a, there's a real human behavior aspect to this. And, and I've kind of got a bit interested in it as a sideline, not really a sideline, but I've sort of started looking into things like motivational interviewing and, and communication. And again, things that I've picked up from the physiotherapy world, if I'm honest. Um, um, and it turns out that this job isn't as easy as I was promised it would be. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things It's like, you go through you through medical school, me through PT school, and it's like we learn like this is how you treat someone, this is what you do. We don't learn like guess what? These people have their own thoughts and beliefs about. Them. I know, I know. It's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bummer, but uh, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> um, curious when you are assessing, do you look up the chain as far as what the hips doing, what the torso is doing, or do you leave that to your physios to do when, once they're in rehab? Yeah, I, we definitely, I definitely look um, when we're doing sort of a, what we a formal gait analysis. You know, so we've got someone um, often on the treadmill at their own self-selected speed after a period of, of habituation, and we're trying to make this as we're trying to take this very um, atypical and contrived environment and extrapolate what we see into a typical, you know, normal day run for them, which I think has limitations in itself. But when we do that, we have the opportunity, of course, to to look at them from top to bottom. So we always look at things like uh, arm swing symmetry, um, uh, upper body sort of posture. I mean, it comes under, I guess, sort of comes under the, the, the remit of the, the running technique, but, but also I think really asymmetrical arm swings uh, can often give you clues as well about uh, other things that might be going on down below. I, I, there was a, a, te- uh, a lecture I had many years ago that said, if you ever see an asymmetrical arm swing, go back and check whether they've got a leg length difference. Um, that was his, his belief. I've not actually read any data to support that, but it's, you know what it's like when you're told something 20 years ago, and it's still in my mind. I can't, I always do it. I'm not saying there always is one, but yeah, we always look at, um, you know, overall technique. So sort of upper body posture, symmetry of arm swing. Um, I think the thing I look at proximally the most is, is that the pelvic control. Um, so you know, we see an awful lot of people, the non-elite people we're seeing in London are, are, very sedentary for for sort of 60 hours a week so they're working in, in, in almost exclusively in office-based environments so they're sitting all day so i think the expectation is that you know you, you're, you're not going to see beautiful pelvic control in all these people that sit for 60 hours a week um, and i guess you could have a debate about how how relevant it is or not i don't tend to do too much about it um i'll, I'll observe it as I say, it's very rare that people that see me aren't seeing a physiotherapy colleague anyway. Um, so if I'm the first person to look at that runner running, um, when I sort of hand over the report, you know, hand over the patient to the physio, I'll, I'll say, this is what I'm doing down at the distal end. But just so you know what I saw approximately, uh, you know, left-sided Trendelenburg, you know, femoral adduction. Internal, yeah, we'll, we'll have that chat um, from a mechanical perspective. So yeah, I would say I, I look very, very, very closely at the foot and ankle and I would then just very closely at the knee and then just closely, you know, so very, very closely down at the bottom. By the time I get to the hip, I'm just looking kind of closely. And then north of the hip, it's a cursory glance. And, but I, you know, we all kind of, because we have got such a, a, a multidisciplinary team approach, we know that it will be covered. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, up to the hips is, is, is probably where I, I get, I lose, I lose how comfortable I am at discussing mechanics uh, north of the hip. <laughs> <laughs> For good reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's too complex. <laughs> awesome. 
Um, just kind of start closing it out a little bit. For a runner who is dealing with an injury right now and just not sure what direction to go if self-treat or if seeing a practitioner is the best way to go, it's kind of any tips or thoughts you can give them as far as things to assess on them, ways to assess what their body's feeling in order to determine what they need, what's probably the best course of direction to go? Yeah, I think it's similar to what we uh, talked about fairly early on is, is I think certain things that a runner experiences should, should, should always be always get, you should always seek a medical opinion. One of those is night pain. Um, I just don't think you should ever, ever have night pain and consider that something that isn't worthy of, of deeper investigation. Um, the other is, um, is I, I would always say anything neuro, that feels neural. So pins, needles, tingling, um, I'd, I'd always get that, that kind of stuff checked out as well. And the other thing um, that, that I've just seen a few of recently, so it's, I guess it's kind of probably fresh in, fresher in my mind than it normally would be, is I've seen a few quite young people recently. I say young, you know, like mid, mid-20s, early 30s, but they're young and they're fit and they're healthy. They've got no medical history to speak of. Uh, and they come in and they've started running and they've got sort of like uh, both my ankles hurt, both my knees hurt. And... Um, and I've sort of looked and I've, I, my general rule is more than two or three joints, more than two or three areas. It, even if someone's young and fit and healthy and it, you, you're looking at them and your mind with your blinkers on is immediately like, this is a young fit person. They've started running and they've got some, some areas of discomfort. It must be mechanical. We've picked up a few rheumatological, more sort of systemic inflammatory conditions recently in people where it, the history just didn't feel right. Um, so we sort of, it was only on further sort of questioning where we sort of went, well, this doesn't feel like a classic overload. They haven't really overdone it. They've got multiple joints. Um, and then we asked them about their family history, about whether they've got psoriasis or whether they've got any stomach uh, irritability, you know, that kind of uh, screening questions. And a few of those, I think, um, yeah, there's been a few people in their thirties recently who you'd say, oh, they've just, they just started running and their knees and their ankles are sore where actually it was, it was an undiagnosed sort of, uh, inflammatory condition so i guess if you're a runner and you start running and your knees and your ankles sore you're probably not you're just going to immediately assume this is because of running um i i would often say if you've got more than three if you've got three or more areas that hurt at one time get checked out and that's, that's got no scientific basis to it at all it's just kind of a i think night pain nerve pain or three or more areas definitely go and get checked but if you've got the if you're in a position where financially or insurance wise, you can get checked regardless. I mean, it's never going to be wasted time. It's never going to be wasted time. So it's not like we need to see everyone, but I think uh, if you can get checked, if you're in a position where you can, you should, but if you've got night pain, nerve pain or, or three areas or more, I would, I would always do whatever you can to, to see someone. I love it. Those are, those are three great um, pointers there for sure. Awesome. Well, Ian, uh, if anyone wants to know more about you, find you, follow you, where can they do that at? Yep. Um, uh, I guess, you know, the internet is, is probably the quick answer, you know, as, as always <laughs> nowadays, I, I'm just a bit of a slave to, to social media like most people. So I'm on, um, my website is, is, um, sportspodiatryinfo.co.uk. I'm on, uh, Instagram sportspodiatryinfo, uh, Facebook sportspodiatryinfo and Twitter, just sports underscore pod. 
Um, and yeah, they all, you can, people can get hold of me through any of those uh, media. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.